journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shabbat This is Adol Kazilski. This is one. 1.9 High FM, and I'm joining you for the next three quarters of an hour to do my favorite thing of the entire week, and that is to learn Torah, to look into our ancient wisdom and derive from it the, the beauty and the lessons that we need to learn. Um, if you haven't joined me before, um, please be my guest. I am so excited that you are with me. If you have, as always, you know I encourage you to open up the Bible, follow inside in the original because that is where we actually gain so much knowledge. When we look at the Bible in its original, we don't have to worry about any type of um, misunderstanding or misinterpretation. We're looking in the original. And where are we? We're sitting in the book of Exodus. We're in the Parsha of Bo. We're in chapter 12. We are going to be starting verse 12, so Perik Yudbet, possibly. You'd bet. We are sitting on the cusp of redemption and we are seeing how the Jewish people are preparing for that redemption. Redemption came after the plague of the firstborn and um, there was a lot of preparations before, primarily that they should take the Egyptians' foremost god, the lamb, tie it to a bedpost, keep it for four days and on the 14th day sacrifice it, eat of its meat, gird their loins, take this off and be ready to leave the land of Egypt once God himself had passed passed over the land and destroyed all the firstborns. It probably was quite a nerve-wracking and dramatic time to, to, to be there during that time. And as always, when we learn this, we actually realize and understand as well that whatever happened in Egypt, we've got a, an adage in the Bible that says, Mase Abot Siman Libanim, that what happened to our forefathers is a sign of the future. And so we know that we are on the cusp of redemption now, albeit that it's very, very dark out there, albeit that the forces of evil are trying to overcome us, albeit that there is a lot of lies, antagonism, um, et cetera, et cetera, Jewish people know that we have a promise from God, we have a promise of redemption, and please God, we're looking forward to that redemptive light coming into the world, this time hopefully the final redemptive light, where we will usher in a time of peace, of prosperity, of health, of, of goodness, not only for the Jewish people, but for all human beings. And anybody who wants to live a life of morality, of kindness, of goodness, of respectful for humans, respect for animals, respect for their planet, and and who hold close to heart uh, the Ten Commandments and um, all the good stuff in life, you'll be along for the ride. And I can't wait. I don't know about you. So in the meantime, we're going to go back to the biblical text, and we are going to follow in. And if you've got any questions or any comments, please feel free. 34519 is our SMS line, or 061-895-1019 is uh, our telegram number. Right, verse chapter 12, verse 12, let's see what it is that we can call today. This is God speaking, 
God was telling for the last little while, God was telling everybody what to do with the lamb and how to eat it, etc., etc. Um, now we are going to see what God is saying he's going to do to the land of Egypt. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. And I will strike down every firstborn of Egypt. I will not, I will not really strike down the firstborn of the human race of man, but of the beast. I will form acts of judgment against all the gods of Egypt at the end of Ani Hashem. I am God, meaning after this, uh, plague, you will know and you will notice that, um, there is no other God but God. So, um, what was very interesting, and we spoke about it before, was that um, this plague was done by God himself, by, by, by nobody else. Yes, did he come down with, it says, with legions of destructive angels, but this was personally done by God himself. And it is similar to to a um, an example of like when a king comes to town, and uh, as he goes along, people are so scared of him, everybody flees from his presence. So God says, I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down with tens of thousands of destructive angels, and I am going to ensure that every firstborn um, dies. Now, we keep on thinking that it is only the firstborn of a family, but even the firstborn of foreigners that were visiting Egypt would be struck down. Um it didn't matter where the Egyptians tried to hide. Um, they would be killed even if they went into hiding. All the firstborn of the animals would die. And in fact, we are told um, that if it was the case of twins, the reason why God doesn't doesn't um, doesn't do anything personally, um, is, why God sorry why God is doing it personally is because. Um, you need the knowledge of God, for example, in the case of twins, to know which was con- conceived first. So this was um, done very, very, uh, very, very uh, precisely, and God knew exactly what was going on. Um, one of the signs that was put up, as we know, was the sign of the blood, where the Jews were protected by the sign of blood. But if an Egyptian tried to put up blood in order to protect himself, that did not work because, again, this was done by God, and so he knew exactly. He, he, the truth of the matter is God didn't need any sign. If God is God and he is infinite, then he didn't really need any sign. Um, and... Uh, we need to then ask ourselves the question, why did God ask the Jews to put blood on the door? And uh, after the break now, we are going to go and dis- discuss this entire significance, which in 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 fact is actually quite um, quite fascinating and actually derives from something that we still do today. So I don't want you to go anywhere. Hang on to, to your radio, um, and we'll be back shortly. This is 101.9. Hi, FM. 
Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is Adel Kozulski, and uh, we are learning from the Bible. And just before the break, we were speaking about the fact that there was a sign um, between the the Jewish people's houses and the Egyptians, insofar as from the blood of the Paschal Lamb, we painted blood on the door uh, on 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 the door lintels, and this was how we um, separated ourselves from the Egyptians. But of course, we know that God did not need a sign on a door in order to know which home was inhabited by the Israelites. And I just told you that if an Egyptian decided to paint uh, <laughs> some blood, it didn't help him. So then, really, what? What is what? What was the symbolism of it? Now we need to maybe take a little bit of a step back and analyze this whole concept. And the concept around this idea is really the concept of what a door symbolizes. Now, a door in a house creates privacy. It also gives you shelter. It also gives you protection. But generally, the door of a house is what separates the public person from the private person. And when you start looking into the Hasidic masters and and the Kabbalistic masters, and they're looking for much deeper symbolism to what was actually happening on a practical level in Egypt, one can go and see that this door, um, if we take it metaphorically, if it does separate the public person from the private person, it is also about the external self from the internal self. Now, in the privacy of one's home, um, we know most of the time many of our facades and our inhibitions tend to fall away, and it allows us to be our best and sometimes, yep, even the worst of who we are. Right When we are in our home, that's when we feel at home. We feel that we can behave in whatever manner we want because we don't have to uphold any public opinion. Um, and so by way of example, you can, for example, find people that are very patient on the outside. They're, they're all smiles. They're cheerful when they're in public. And when they come home, as they say, it's moody, broody time. They don't have patience for the kids. They don't have tolerance for their spouse. There's not a smile anywhere in sight. They open the door. They go outside in the public, and then they're the sweetest people you you can find. The vice versa is also true. On the other hand, you can get people, for example, that are very quiet. They're very uh, withdrawn. They're reserved. They're, they're uptight when they're in public. But when you find them in the confines of their homes, their barrels of fun and laughter, and they make a noise, etc., etc. So what is the symbolism of the door? The door is where that transition from the superficial you to the real you tends to take place. So then, what does Judaism really ask of us? Judaism is asking of us, what sort of doors do we have? What transpires on the inside of those doors? Is there a spirit of holiness, a spirit of sanctity on the other side of that threshold? In the privacy of your own home, do you have Jewish books on your shelf? 
Are there kosher products in your cupboards, in the fridge? Or uh, is Shabbat and the Jewish holiday celebrated? Um, is there joy? Is there meaning? Is there depth? Is there words of Torah? Are there, are there prayers recited? Now, only you and Hashem, Almighty God, will truly know the answer to these questions. But there is a an, an important thing here, and that is that Judaism demands that what we have on the outside should be on the inside, and vice versa. The concept is called Tocha Kigiboro. What's on the inside should show on the outside. If you manage to practice um, kindness and a smile and compassion and empathy to the outside world, so too should you be practicing that to your inside world, not only to your immediate family, to your spouse, to your children, etc., etc. I dare say it should even be happening to yourself, that you should be able to be practicing that on yourself. And vice versa, if you are, you're able to express yourself on the inside, in your home, you're comfortable, then you should work on making the outside where you now engage the world. You should have confidence. You should be able to have the courage to go out and speak and, and be who you are also on the outside. You don't need to be intimidated. So, this is generally the, the 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 context of what a door is symbolizing um, in in Judaism that it is the the border between the public self and the private self, the external self, the internal self. Now, what do we what what were the Jews really doing? What the Jews were doing when they put up that blood on the door was that they were mimicking. The, the mitzvah that we know today of mezuzah. So let's just take a step back before we get into the, the concept of mezuzah again, which I know is, is, is fairly understood and, um, by, by, I hope our listenership, but we're going to go into it a little bit more. But before we take, let's take a step back. Until the Torah was given, Jews were able to do certain things in the world that mimicked and elicited spiritual responses, but they did not have the permanence that we received once we uh, got the Torah. What do I mean by that? Before the Torah was given, we did not have and we did not understand um, what it was to do a mitzvah and allow the mitzvah to have a permanent effect on the world. That only got activated by Har Sinai, by the giving of the Torah on Har Sinai, meaning from the year 2448 when we received Torah, when we do a mitzvah, be it the mitzvah of mezuzah, of lighting Shabbat candles, of shaking lulav and etrog, of being kind, of learning Torah as we are doing now, the mitzvah itself remains embedded in the universe, remains embedded as a good deed, and it affects the world forever. Before that, it affected for the time, but it lost its effectus afterwards. Now, just as I'm saying that the blood on the lintels mimicked the protection of the mezuzah, which we're going to get into now, um, just by way of example, Earlier on in the book of Genesis, when we learned, and we just finished this parsha maybe two parshiots ago, I think, um, 
where Jacob finds himself by his forefather Laban, Laban, and they keep on making a deal about which sheep um, will be for the earnings of Jacob and which will be for Laban. And they had all different types of sheep, spotted and speckled and striped and plain and brown and black. There were all, all different varieties of sheep. And um, we learn a very enigmatic um, couple of verses where Jacob puts um, the sheep by the trough to drink and in front of them he puts certain pieces of wood on it. He's engraved whether it's spotted or speckled or striped and that affected the, 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 the animals and that's what they gave birth to and that's how um, uh, he landed up with a lot of sheep. But if you look in the Kabbalistic teachings, it says that this entire thing that Jacob did was symbolic of the mitzvah, interestingly, of tefillin. Right, tefillin are those black boxes that, that Jewish men over the age of 13 wrap every single day on their heads and, and around their arms. Um, and it is something, by the way, that has been spoken about a lot now since October 7th, that we're told that when people put on, when men put on tefillin, it creates a fear amongst the enemy. Um, and there is a huge drive for people to do that. So if you're a man listening, if you don't put on tefillin daily, please find someone who will assist you. You can also get yourself your own tefillin. Um, there is, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, resources that can help you in this regard. But going back to the fact that Yaakov was eliciting the blessings of tefillin, by doing this concoction with the sheep. Similarly, now in Egypt, the Jews were um, concocting is a very bad word. They were not concocting. We don't believe in heebie-jeebies. What the Jews were doing was that they were mimicking. They were mimicking the 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 uh, power of the mezuzah. Now. We know that we are obligated to put a mezuzah on the right doorpost of every Jewish home, not only on the front door, but in every single room that we live in, except for the bathroom and toilet, even if it is an outside room, if we've got a shed, if we've got a garage, if we've got a storeroom, we need to have a mezuzah on anything that has um, a lintel and, and, and two doorposts. Now, what does a mezuzah testify? It testifies that this is a Jewish home. There's holiness here, there's modesty, there's decency, there's goodness, it's a way of life, and it's not only behind closed doors. Because the mezuzah represents God's presence in the home, as well as his protection over all those that reside in there, and that it's not only about inside, but outside, when a person goes on holiday, he has the protection of the mezuzah that is sitting on his doorpost. And um, what is a mezuzah? It is a scroll. It has two parashiot of the of, of the Shema, which is fundamental to a Jewish home, and it it lends, it brings the powers of of protection by God to the residents on them inside and out. Now, when we go, um, and by the way, I just want to put it out there, it's not the mezuzah case um, and what it looks like that's the most important. 
it's what's inside that really matters. And in order to get something authentic, okay, you need to speak to a kosher certified software and make sure that you are buying the real thing. A photostat copy won't do. And um, there are certain unfortunate um, people who deal in trying to sell things in a very, very cheap way, and it doesn't really, really help. So you need to contact a bona fide scribe and ensure that you get good quality um, that are written according to halakha. So when we go back now to the Israelites marking the doorposts with blood um, of the of the of the Pesach sacrifice, the first thing we understand that it's it's not an address or a door marker. What it is, it's a form of protection for the Jewish people, but it goes even further and it actually is applied to the resort that we have on our doors today. It is testimony, it was testimony that they were truly ready to leave Egypt, that they were devoted inside and out, only now to God and both indeed to the point of self-sacrifice. Um, and that's why their homes were, were, were untouchable by the angel of death. Okay? It was people, it, it, it was really for the benefit of the Jewish people that they understood that they were Jews. They weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't Egyptian anymore. So it's all about the door, but the door has so many metaphorical uh, meanings to it, and I hope that this actually gave you a greater insight into why the blood was on the doors. It was for us. It was not for God, obviously. Okay, let's let's move on. Um, going back to the fact that God was going to destroy all firstborns from animal to beast, we are also told that God performed acts of judgment. And what are these acts of judgment? The Midrash tells us that they were against the gods of the Egyptians on that night. Okay, idols made of silver and gold, they melted. Those that were made of stone were shattered. Those that were clay figures, they became pulverized. Those that were made of wood just suddenly decayed. So what happened with this plague of the death of the firstborn was that the entire Egypt eventually recognized the power of God. The Egyptians were, were, were hysterical as we spoke about last week. There was a civil uprising against Pharaoh to let the Jews go. Many were worried, so worried about this firstborn plague that they hid their firstborns in their temples, trusting that their gods would protect them. And now we know that not only were the firstborns killed, but all the idols that were protecting them were also destroyed. Um, the sheep that were the gods of Egypt started burning. It says an odor spread throughout the entire city. It caused the Egyptians as much anguish as all the plagues put together. Actually unbelievable. So this was like just the point where it became unquestionable to everybody around that there was a Hashem and that there's somebody, there was um, somebody um, much greater than them 
that was running the world. This blood will be for you as a sign. On the houses that you are staying. I will see the blood. I will pass over you. I will pass over. That's where we get the word Pesach, which means to pass over. And the pass over means pass over in the plague of the firstborn. There will not be any deathly plague amongst you as I go out and I strike um, the, the, the Egyptians. Now, there was other symbolism about the blood on the doors because God says, when I see the blood, I will remember that I have kept my instructions. I will have mercy on you. The blood will remind me of the blood of Yitzchak who was bound up on the altar. And so when I strike the Egyptians, you will not be formed. Um, that's why if you go look at the verse, it says the, the, the blood shall be for you a sign. Okay? Um, meaning that where were they going to get the blood? Obviously, they had to, sadly, slit the throat of the lamb, skin it, roast it. All of that was deeds that the Jewish people were doing, but it was there that they should understand that this entire thing was because of, of them. Right, let's continue. We can... Oh, we are actually coming close to a break. I think we're not going to continue. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. This is Adel Kozilski and we are going through the Bible. We are now going to very interestingly see where we derive all the mitzvot that have to do with Pesach. So let's look at chapter 12. We're on verse 14 now. V'chaya hayom ha'hu lachem lezikaron. This day that you're going to be going out of Egypt will be a commemoration for you. V'chagotem oto chag lahashem ledorotechem chukat olam t'chaguhu. It will be for you to celebrate as a festival to God for all generations. It's an internal decree that you must celebrate it. So the 50th of Nisan, which we commonly know as the first day of Pesach, became a religious festival, and it is a festival that we have been commemorating since the year 2448. It is probably, um, after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the most significant holiday that we as the Jewish people hold. Now, here's all the verses that have to do on how we hold it, and you will see that it actually is vitally important and has some very, very strict um, rules around it. Shivat yamim matzot For seven days you must eat matzot. Ach beyom harishon tashbitu shor b'matechem ki kol ochel chametz v'nichrota hanefesh ahim Yisrael beyom harishon beyom hashvi'i. Well, he has the first very, very strict law that comes about. For seven days we're going to eat the matzot, but from the first day you must clear your home of or chametz. Whoever eats chametz on Pesach from the first day to the seventh day, the Torah says, his soul shall be cut off from Israel. It is the punishment 
of what we call in Hebrew karet or kares. Now, this is a very, very severe punishment. It is not something that one willingly would want to bring um, upon themselves. And really what it means that it will be spiritually cut off is that, again, in Kabbalah, we are taught that the Jewish people are actually one major, one big soul. And proof of the pudding is that you can see now how much um, Jewish people have been rattled by what is happening to our fellow Jews around the world, in particular in Israel. When we hear the death of a soldier, it hurts all of us. And you would think, why? Does it matter to me? I live so many thousands of kilometers away. And the answer is yes, because on a spiritual level, we we form one soul. And so if your foot hurts, your head is going to feel it. If your hand hurts, it's going to try to soothe. And uh, if your foot hurts, your hand is going to try to soothe the hand because we're all one body. Now, if, God forbid, a person goes and eats chomets on Pesach, you go and eat um, anything that constitutes chomets, you get spiritually cut off, and that's exceedingly, exceedingly painful for the Jewish soul, and it suffers immeasurably. So it is a very, very strict law. It's the same as the law of Karet if somebody goes and eats willingly, knowingly, wantingly on Yom Kippur. The Torah continues and says, We know that festival of Pesach is for seven days, right? The first day and the last day is a holy day, meaning that it has the status of a full Yom Tov. Sorry. You cannot do any work on those days. You can only eat um, that which alone may be done for you. So the first day of Yontav and the last day is a Yontav. The intermediate days are called Cholomorain. We must eat, we must drink, we must wear festive clothes. Um, and we must um, preserve the holiness of the festivals, the, the festival of Pesach. Obviously, in the Galut, um, in the diaspora, we keep two days yom at the beginning and two days yom at the end. If you don't understand why, you can uh, pop back onto my podcast a couple of weeks. We spoke about the, the the mitzvah of the new moon and why the diaspora landed up having and getting two days yom instead of one. Ushmartem et matzot, you should guard the matzahs, and this is where we get the concept of shmura matzah. Shmartem comes from the word guard, and by this it means that you should watch the um, process of producing the flour for the matzahs all the way until the matzahs are manufactured. There should be a mashkiach, there should be somebody watching it that not, it will never ever come into contact with something damp or water that would cause it to, le- uh, to leaven. So, you will watch the matzahs, you will eat more matzah. Because on that day, I took all the masses out of the land of Egypt. It's a play on the word shmatem. And so you need to keep this day. You need to watch this day. You need to guard this day for all generations as eternal degree. And so Shmura Matzah 
and our preciseness of making sure that nothing comes in contact with the matter um, is a symbol that God was Shomer. He was a God over us. He guarded all of us while he took us out of Egypt, while the, the, they were in the throes of absolute destruction with the, the angel of death, and there was death all around. Hashem looked after us. And so in kindness, we repay by keeping Shura Matzah, by keeping Matzah that has been guarded and that we are careful. And we are, we are, we are super careful. We are very, very careful that everything and anything that we eat, that we bring into the house, has a hasha on Pesach. Pesach is all about, Pesach is all about, uh, Shmira. You will eat it from the eve of the 14th day of the month in the evening. That means it's the 15th day. You will eat matzahs and you will continue eating it for seven days until the 21st in the diaspora. We eat it for eight days. So here you can see um, the lesson that um, the festival begins and ends at sunset and that's that's um, how we define the holiday of Pesach. Verse 19. For seven days you should not find any leaven in your home. And if anybody's eating any leaven, the soul again will be cut off from the community, even if it is a a, a ger, meaning a person who is converted to Judaism, or is somebody that was natively born in the land. Here we are seeing that the laws of Hamas is not just about not eating bread. It's about not eating any product that has not even a drop of leaven in it. And that's why everything that we eat on has a hersha. But it goes more than that. Not only are we allowed, not allowed to eat it, we're not allowed to own it. It cannot be found in our houses. And this would lead, of course, to the, the custom that we have is that obviously, you know, particularly in modern day and because of the way we shop, we do have leaven products in our, uh, in our pantries. It's really, really hard to get rid of it all. And so we go through a halakhic agreement and we sell a chomet, so we are not the rightful owners of that chomet. And the reason we do that is because we have been told over here that we cannot have leaven in our in our home. So we can't eat it. We can't own it. And it goes even further. We cannot derive benefit from it. Meaning that <clears throat> if you have got a business that, that, that you will earn money from selling leaven, you're in an outside business where you're, you're a bakery and you're selling bread, you cannot earn the profits of that. You have to sell it as well. So the Torah is really, really, really strict on it. And the reason why it repeats it again, <clears throat> excuse me, and mentions the convert and the native of the land, it could be that somebody goes, well, you know what, I converted now. I wasn't there during the time of Egypt. It didn't have to be so strict. No. Any person who is a Jew, okay, has to ensure that they are super, super, super strict about the laws of eating leaven on Pesach. This is 101.9 Fire Effect. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish.
Okay, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I just want to say one or two more things. If you look at the word chametz, which is leaven, um, the numerical value of that comes to 138, um, and that is the same as the numerical value of the word pegima. Pegima means blemish, meaning whoever will eat leaven on Pesach will be blemished. And very interestingly, we see that the Torah repeats eating leaven twice. First time they use it as the word machmetze, and then they use the word chometz. What's the difference between chometz and machmetze? Chometz is chometz. It's the real stuff. It's leaven. It's made from flour. We, we recognize uh, what it is. Machmetze is that which is leavening, right? So yeast or sourdough is leavening. It's used to make leavened bread. That, too, is forbidden on Pesach. Finally, we've got verse 20 that says, Kol machmetzet. This is what I was talking about now. Lotoklu, we should not eat, eat, eat anything like that. Any leavening. Bechol moshmotechem toklu matel. The only thing that you need to eat are matzahs. And, of course, there is this entire concept that um, matzahs and the reason why we are so nutsers about matzahs, okay, and that we've got to keep the, 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 the leaven out is that it is symbolic of our, of our egos. And one of the things that a Jew needs to do in order to allow God in is to let your ego out. And so once a year we actually do this in a very, very, um, in a very precision way, in a very intense way, so that it can just rub off on us for the rest of the year. That concludes our learning for today. And uh, please, God, um, this, this is my last broadcast for the for the for the year. I will be away, but I will be back early January, and we will continue learning the Book of Exodus. I'm pretty excited because it is actually the the, the most exciting part when the Jews go out of redemption, and maybe maybe. The time we get back um, on live air, we too will see the final redemption with the arrival of Mashiach, with safety, health, prosperity for all of mankind. Have a wonderful Hanukkah and a wonderful rest ahead. This is 101.9 High FM.